I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source, with a podcast you've got to lean into with us. The subject, in a word, is despair, both public and private. The poets and spiritual seekers Christian Wyman and his wife Danielle Chapman are back to goad us, each with a new book. Their project is Staring into the Abyss in the Nietzsche formula to see if the abyss stares back or talks back. And I think it does. Listeners, you be the judge. Christian Wyman, it's good to see you again and to read your new book, Zero at the Bone, subtitled 50 Entries Against Despair. It's more interesting, too, because the woman who broke your life open in love most of 20 years ago is in on the conversation. And it's more urgent when we can all feel a certain despair out there coming on like a cold front. Some say an epidemic of loneliness or melancholy. Can you say, Christian Wyman, how despair out there in a society connects with despair of the heart? Can we connect to several despairs? Oh, yes, I think we do. I mean, I, I think um, there are different kinds of despair. This book emerged largely out of existential despair, but it touches on all kinds of different despairs, environmental despair, racial despair, political despair, different forms of spiritual despair. I think that we tend to get overwhelmed when we think of despair as only a public thing. It can seem absolutely overwhelming, and there's this sort of monolithic thing that we can't do anything about. And one of the answers in my life for me has been to preserve and protect a space in your own soul where you can know that you have a soul Mm -hmm. and can fortify yourself in some way against that, but also make yourself fit to do battle with it if you need to. Danielle Chapman, you've written a memoir about your Tennessee family called Holler, a poet among patriots. In the meantime, you're making a remarkable life in sickness and in health and parenting with Christian Wyman. At the core of it seems to be a conviction that you share, that a very focused attention to poetry and the spirit life we call religion can actually wake people up and break the spell of despair. And you're doing it together. Christian Wyman says you brought the light to his private abyss. And people want to know how you do it. You were a very junior assistant at Poetry Magazine when Christian Wyman was its editor. You said that your first free conversation with him was in a language no one else could understand around a life story that you had never shared before. Do you remember it? (laughs) Yes, I remember that quite well. I think you're referring to a walk we took where I shared a religious experience that I'd had when I was about 21. Essentially, I'd say poetry and God kind of came to me at the same time, an experience that was pretty much untranslatable. I've attempted to do so. The long poem in the middle of my first book of poems is sort of about that experience, but it was an experience of God that definitely changed my life. How did you know? Well, it was pretty dramatic. There were many phases of it, but I mean, one aspect of it was that I sort of heard the first lines of poetry that came to me, I'd say, from the outside rather than kind Mm. of 
manufacturing them myself. A better way to say it might be the first lines that felt inspired to me, and they were inspired by this experience. So much history here. Christian Wyman, you are a survivor first of rattlesnake country, if we can call it that, West Texas, generations of grave family troubles. You write about your own father vanishing, your mother racked with rage and faith, your siblings sinking into drugs and alcohol, your own mind burning at night like an oil fire on water. Complete chaos, you've written. Bring us into that life. I teach at Yale now, and some people are surprised when I tell them where I'm from, and not so much anymore, but they used to be, and I actually think of it as a very natural place for a poet to come from. We didn't have any books in our house, but I think the kind of intensity, spiritual intensity, of that world was very good uh, training for a poet. And maybe it made me fit for some of the other things that I've had to deal with in my life. Like I have had cancer now for 20 years and been rescued numerous times. Perhaps that upbringing toughened me up some. But surely cancer comes with its own ghosts of despair, I'm sure. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, Yeah, it's hard not to fall into despair at times with cancer. But one thing you realize pretty quickly is that it seems like half the world has cancer. And it also seems pretty quickly like uh, everywhere you turn, somebody has it worse than you. I've had it for 20 years. I mean, that is an incredible blessing to be able to have had it for 20 years, Mm. um, to be able to have survived. When I've fallen into despair, it's not usually because of cancer. It's not usually because of the thought that I will die, although with children that has made it a lot worse. But it's usually because of the meaninglessness, a sense that meaning has drained out of things and that I can't feel meaning in my life. Not that you're leaving life, but that it has no meaning. That's actually the seed of this book, is that feeling right there. How do you address that feeling right there? You've also said that coming back to poetry, poetry coming back to you, was not so much because of the cancer as because of Danielle and love. Yeah, we started to say these prayers when we got together. We would just say them first jokingly before dinner, and then... Slowly it became more serious, and we were doing it regularly. And then one morning, Danielle was going to church. This is after I got diagnosed, and I just decided to go with her. And after that first service, we just happened to be next to this incredible church. It was just right at the corner. And, and after that first service, I came home, wrote the first poem that I'd written in mm. several years. And, yeah, I did feel like everything broke open at once. Was this when you were living on Grace Street in Chicago? We were, yeah. We gave our one of our daughters the name Grace. Her middle name is Grace. I what? guess he's not going to talk about the love affair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did Grace have to do with it? It felt like it had everything to do with it. Uh, it all felt like a gift. Uh, both what was happening in my life and also suddenly the ability to perceive it. You have to be open to joy in order for it to happen. The, the problem with most of us is that There are moments of joy in our life that we miss. Kierkegaard used to say that we live in in a kind of unacknowledged anxiety or despair. Mm -hmm. And I've often wondered if we live also in some sort of unacknowledged joy. 
that these moments of joy that we have, we often don't recognize them and they just suddenly slice into our lives. And if we could be more ready for them, maybe they would be uh, more available to us. There's a wonderful poem by a poet named Sarah Lindsay called Small Moth, which does this perfectly. You may read it. Please. I don't even know where she lives, although I published her for years when I was at Poetry Magazine. Small Moth. She's slicing ripe white peaches into the Tony the Tiger bowl and dropping slivers for the dog, poised vibrating by her foot to stop their fall when she spots it, camouflaged, a glimmer and then full-on, happiness, plashing blunt, soft wings inside her as if it wants to escape again. And I love that because it's just a moment of, moment of, I would say, joy cutting into her life and showing her that she's actually happy. Don't let ourselves see the happiness in our lives, and it takes a moment of joy to sort of lighten the time. It's so fascinating to me because I picture you in this sort of listening for God or for grace. I picture you as sort of looking for that tiny interval somewhere and finding a way in, and it yields somehow to you, telling you something, answering a question. Yes, there is something in what we call spirit world that's real, and it responds to attention. Yeah, I mean, those moments of poetic inspiration, you can have it actually outside of writing too, but there is a kind of reciprocal seeing that occurs where suddenly you see it's as if what you're seeing is looking back at you, like it has an identity Yes. looking back at you. Probably that's something like what Danielle was experiencing with those first lines, truly inspired lines, the sense that reality was speaking into you, right? Mm -hmm. To me, that's the biggest riddle of all. How do we come to see spirit reality as real? Well, I think linked to what we were just talking about, an experience of joy or spiritual joy isn't necessarily different or completely separate from an experience of despair or suffering. In fact, I think they're often very tied and, and the realness comes from that feeling of having lived something so deeply. And so often, you know, what happens is that an experience of extremity, which we've had a lot of, often will require a poem as if there's nothing else that can be done with the feeling of being on this precipice. That's often what happens for me, you know, and that will result in a sort of lyric poem. And that's one definition of what a lyric poem is. But I think what happens is that it relieves this sense of meaninglessness. So if somehow the form of a poem can say that you lived something, the fact that it now exists creates this spiritual reality where it's not meaningless. The poem had to exist. Somebody else can discover themselves in it. Maybe um, there's a point of connection that relieves this sense of nothingness and puts something there, puts a sort of grain of light where before there was only mm. darkness. Danielle, the outline of your story, as I take it, from your memoir, is of a girl from Middle Tennessee who grew up in the Marine Corps almost. Your grandfather was not just a Marine Corps general, he was the commandant of the Marine Corps during four years of the Vietnam War. 
a man of warmth and honor, a friend of black Marines in particular. And still the despair in your story overall seemed to me to lie in our war history, mm-hmm. even your family's war history. Mm-hmm. Give us your own entry against despair. Despair in my family and in the Marine Corps and in America often has to do with feeling that your experience is unspeakable and the inability to speak suffering. And for people who've been in war, that's often a physical condition. PTSD Mm -hmm. often strands people's experiences in the past and makes it impossible for them to move beyond it. And I think there was a lot of PTSD in my family um, and a lot of trauma, a lot of tragedy that couldn't be felt, although it was always there very poignantly and very fully in some ways, and yet it could never be spoken. And Mm. so, you know, the book is in some ways an attempt to just tell those stories that family members could not tell, that I couldn't tell. And that is, I think, an entry against despair, being able to finally find language for what had previously seemed unspeakable. Open up any one of those stories, if you will. Probably my grandmother's is the most uh, present one. She was at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. My grandfather was on a ship at Pearl Harbor, and she watched the bombing from a fourth-story window at her friend's apartment. Didn't know for four days whether my grandfather was alive. She also had two brothers who were fighter pilots, both Mm. shot down in Germany, and you know, none of this stuff. I never heard a word about any of it my my entire childhood. And we basically lived with them. So she was a character in my childhood, a very unusual character. She was a Southern lady. Mm. She would have introduced herself to you as Emily Donaldson, Walton Ford Chapman Jr., mm-hmm. descendants, you know, of the Donaldsons. And she also called herself, even though she technically would have been called the Commandant's Wife, She called herself the First Lady of the Corps. (laughs) (laughs) She had size five feet, and she was very proud of that. So she had these little eccentricities, but really, for the most part, she did not speak at all, um, unless she was jolted into speech by some occurrence. But I didn't find out until I was a teenager that she'd actually been medicated my entire life. She was on uh, Thorazine, which is a a heavy-duty narcotic for uh, schizophrenics. And, you know, whether or not this was actually the case, I think is very debatable. Probably what happened is that she had PTSD and uh, the, you know, military doctors thought, oh, we've got a very neurotic general's wife here. Let's you know, give her if a you good could have asked her then or later, Grandma, where's the despair? What might she have said? Oh, <laughs> I think she would have had a lot to say. And in fact, um, probably it would be pretty disordered. But I think it would be a despair that is incredibly American and very Southern and really went back to her inability to um, be who she thought she was, Mm -hmm. be who she'd been told she was by American history, by what she thought a Southern lady 
was supposed to be. And, you know, as times changed, she couldn't adapt to the fact that her story had to change. Chris Wyman, at the center of your book, Zero at the Bone, there's an amazing story. Also, it's a story that you couldn't have told before. You felt, in retrospect, it was sinful that you hadn't told it before. It's an unbelievable saga of your sister and your father. In short, there they were in West Texas. He's addicted to one thing or another. She is completely addicted to hard drugs, it seems, all of her life. You're in touch with him. She asks you, what is it like to live with death? Very penetrating question, and you wonder whether you asked her or not, what's it like to live with your death? But also, she's impressed by Jesus. She's in an asylum, and she feels Jesus' presence. All these strands circling around. But to come to the end of it, your father dies. He and she are there together. Your father, her father, dies, and she is immediately cold turkey. She's off drugs. She's cured in some fashion, and she lives in outwardly normal life today. Tell that story in your terms and why you felt it was sinful not to have told it before. Yeah, I wrote an essay about, it's probably 15 years now, maybe longer, about a time when I tried to write a novel and failed, and it was set in West Texas and set at a mental institution, and my father had gone to work as a psychiatrist at a mental institution, and eventually he was... Um, at the uh, state hospital for the criminally insane. He left because he got beaten up very badly by one of the patients, prisoners. I don't know what the term is. So his life was pretty much ruined after that. And my sister, who had gone through her own addictions, had ended up in prison. We went and visited her at one point. And that's when she first asked me that question, uh, what's it like to live with death all the time? And and I was just irritated at the time and sort of brushed it off. And years passed, and she got out of prison, and then she and my father were living at one of those residential hotels. And she asked me that again sometime around there. And the reason I hadn't published that first essay, I wrote that essay, and then I was set to publish it, and I withdrew it. And the reason was because there was something wrong with it, and Danielle actually pointed it out. It just left no space for hope for her. Mm. And if you read the essay now, the way that I describe her, even asking those questions that she asked and saying that she had experienced the presence of Jesus in the middle of that prison gives the evidence of someone who's got hope. So 12 years passed, I didn't work on that essay, and then I returned to it because it just nagged at me for 12 years. And I told the rest of the story, which you've told, about her stopping drugs. The minute my father died, it wasn't as if it was a painless miracle because she went through withdrawal. But she stuck like with it. Does. She stuck with it and uh, has stuck with it. And so, yeah, I felt that I hadn't um, done justice or credit to her life in that first essay. So I wrote a coda, which is just as long, and, and then published the whole thing together. Correct me if I get it wrong, but I took it as a kind of kernel of the whole picture. Here's terrible suffering in front of your eyes, and suddenly Father dies, and she is, I won't say miraculously, but she is cured. Where did that intervention come from? Who knows? But 
Grace somehow entered, came on stage, and took over, and just inquiring about it led you to, I don't know, a very different outlook on the world. Yeah, I think one of the mysteries of despair is that despair itself can bloom in a way. The, the void can be its own reprieve, and I think in some way that's what she experienced. It's certainly what I've experienced in my life. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the writer Simone Weil is so important to me, because she gave language for that kind of um, absolute emptiness that can itself become a kind of fullness or lead to a way out of itself. Does she explain it? This is Simone Weil, spelled W-E-I-L. The best people in the world quote her, but I don't get her yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, she does explain it in various ways. I mean, she has a whole philosophy about the absence of God. You know, we must believe in God in every way, as if he's the real God, except that he does not exist, because we haven't reached a stage where God could exist. She has a different notion, which I think other theologians have had, that when we say that God exists, it's a meaningless phrase because we can't know what existence would mean in the life of God. God himself is the ground of being. He is the ground of existence. And it makes no sense to then say that God exists. She has various ways of articulating these things that one I found very helpful was she talked about, imagine two prisoners who are in adjoining cells yes. and they learn to communicate why scratching on the wall, and, and the wall is what separates them, but it also is, is what brings them together, enables their communication. And she says, it's thus with us and God, every separation is a link. There's something that separates us from God, and language is what she's pointing to there. Just as it separates us, it enables us to communicate. A poem is the greatest example I know of of, of that. We'll come back to the, the poem remedy, so to speak, but... Can I say, I get a strong sense, especially being with you, that somebody out there, up there, is testing you, but wants you alive and out of pain. Do you call them miracles coming out of a visitation of spirits? Do you have a notion of what it is that's keeping you, maybe me too, alive in this moment? Well, I do believe that God is creating reality at every instant, that if God's attention slipped, it would all be gone. <laughs> It would just vanish. I don't really like the word miracles. I've had some amazing doctors. It's uh, miraculous, the, the science mm -hmm. that has developed in my lifetime. I mean, any other time in history, I'd be dead. It's just incredible. And at the same time, I have had the sense my whole life that I am answering a call that I'm not sure I've heard. Mm -hmm. um, Fanny Howe says that what could I call what was calling me a vocation that had no name? And she meant to, to describe her whole effort of being an artist and also pursuing God her whole life. And I have the sense that, yes, something is guiding me. I wish that it would leave me alone sometimes. Mm. I, mean, I have wished that poetry would leave me alone. And I wish that God would leave me alone. Half wish. You know. <laughs> Danielle, you, you reach for the book of poems about joy. Yeah, because of this word miracle, I know what Chris means, but I think one thing you don't wish will leave you alone is grace, because when you actually do experience it, it relieves everything else. It was making me think of this poem by Donald Hall called Summer Kitchen, 
Donald Hall and Jane Kenyon were poets who were married and Jane Kenyon was quite a bit younger than Don was. And so that was always an aspect of their life because he was very worried that, you know, he would die much earlier than she would. And he was a poet who'd been obsessed with death since the beginning of his career. His his first big poem was called My Son, My Executioner. Mm. So this was kind of a specter for him. And then what happened was that not too long after they were married, she was diagnosed with leukemia. And she died quite young. So he outlived her and wrote many beautiful poems about her. But this is very much my favorite. It's called Summer Kitchen. In June's highlight, she stood at the sink with a glass of wine and listened for the bobo link and crushed garlic in late sunshine. I watched her cooking from my chair She pressed her lips together, reached for kitchenware, and tasted sauce from her fingertips. It's ready now. Come on, she said. You light the candle. We ate and talked and went to bed and slept. It was a miracle. That's a good poem. It's a beautiful poem. Can I say, I knew Donald Hall pretty well, visited him up there, inside of Mount Kearsage and all that. We did television together. And one day, I particularly remember, Jane Kenyon, he said, was just too depressed to come out of the barn. And what can you do, Donald, about that situation? He said, nothing except read the Gospel of John to her aloud. Hmm. I want to say, Danielle, both of you know this fusion of poetic and religious consciousness. That's what the conversation is all about. I'm wondering, when the subject is despair, Do you think of it as sort of the personal story of a public condition? Do you think the country, the common culture, is cueing you and us to pay attention to despair? The time is running out, that the world we know is passing away, that there's a sort of collective version of this tilt and drift toward despair. Just about the Gospel of John, that Don said that about Jane, I think it connects to your question as well. He's probably talking about there's a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot extinguish it. And I think that in that sense, that does relate to our culture. I think we're in an apocalyptic moment, but it's more of an apocalyptic mindset, perhaps, Mm -hmm. than a reality and, you know, despair and apocalypse, I think in a way can be an emotion. And where we are really is in a place where people aren't able to imagine what's next. So I do think that's what we're being cued toward is to have enough faith to be able to imagine what we can be, particularly in America, what we can be as a country, because there's a collective throwing up of the hands in terms of figuring out how to synthesize the past with the reckoning of the present. You ought to add to that, Danielle, your stories about the racial hope that's in your book, because that's another source of grave despair in our country. The Singleton family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, that's a situation that all I can do is testify to it, because I didn't do anything to earn it. It is truly the definition of grace because, I mean, it's an outlandish circumstance in that 
about 25 years ago, the descendants of people who had been enslaved by my ancestors contacted my grandfather, and we had all inherited- This is the commandant himself. He was the commandant. Both the black family and the white family, we had all inherited the same story about a friendship between my great-great-grandfather and their patriarch, whose name was George Singleton. And at that point, the family started getting together. And we've had reunions, mostly organized by their family, where we get together. And I'm an only child, an only grandchild. I have no cousins. However, every summer I get together with about 100 singletons. Um, It's just been a true gift in my life. You know, partly it is a matter of me reckoning with my inheritance, which includes slavery, which includes racism. I just have to accept the generosity offered up by this family. What are the stories that emerge out of nowhere when a hundred Singletons and you gather? (laughs) Well, there's a lot of talking about George Singleton and a lot of playing over the story and trying to kind of figure out what happened with our ancestors and why this friendship could last and kind of puzzling over the history of it. But there's also just a lot of, can I say this on this program, shooting the shit? (laughs) There's a lot of shooting the shit and just kind of um, getting to know each other. I think a good word for it is fellowship. Mm. You know, it's kind of being in community and sharing food and talking about your life. And it's not necessarily dramatic. Is there forgiveness in it? Is there laughter in it? Oh, there's a lot of laughter. and And so the forgiveness is quite extraordinary. I mean, obviously the whole situation, you know, that's underneath it, but it became explicit early on in the relationship. The Singletons baptized me. And well, it was during one of the reunions and I thought we were going for a swim and I went down to the river and I was walking through the rivers, through the shallows and about 50 Singletons were congregated on the rocks and everyone started singing one more river to cross and when i got up there elsie mcmahon and elwood mcmahon who are both elders in their church they said to me we're gonna baptize you (laughs) (laughs) i said okay and it was a full immersion and when i came up they said in the name of jesus christ you are forgiven and you're a mcmahon now (laughs) and i mean they just meant it. Like I was truly taken in. And, you know, it's a situation that kind of allows for manifold possibilities. I I can't say I even know what it means yet, because it's an ongoing story. But I know that it means that something new can happen. It's not just based on the past. All this adds to the impression I get of parallel searches going on. Yours, Chris Wyman, especially, soul reaching for God in poetry and every other way, but at the same time, a stormy and painful American inspiration underway in search of the American soul, its origins, its greatness, its failures, its past, 
its future, and it's all playing out in some dark, mysterious way in a presidential election. And I don't want to talk <laughs> politics, but the condition of the country is hugely troubled and groping. I'm wondering how, how you apply the, the wisdom, the pleasure, the joy of your own experience and your own discovery to what everybody's worried about. Well, I started out by saying that um, you can't let yourself, and I'm speaking to myself here because I tend to do this, you can't let yourself fall into despair about these huge monolithic entities over which you have no control that, you know, I, I will just fall into despair about American politics because it seems to me so broken and just so hopeless. And it helps to create your space in which you can keep some part of your soul pure, not in retreat, but in the hope that you can forge a self and a sound, if you're a poet, that might speak into it. You know, countries fall apart all the time. It's interesting that we think poetry has no power. And a few years ago, it's been a number of years now, I translated the Russian poet, Osip Mandelstam, and he was a Russian modernist, and he drove Stalin mad. Even though Mendelssohn wasn't exactly famous, he was famous among the literary people, but, but Stalin recognized he was a genius, and the pure lyric spirit of Mandelstam drove him mad. And he eventually killed Mandelstam, but he let him live uh, for seven years. And right before Mandelstam died, here's somebody getting killed by the state, um, right before he died, he wrote this poem. He didn't actually write it. He recited all his poems in his head, and then he would come home, and, and his wife would memorize them herself and so that they wouldn't have to have them written down anywhere because it, it was illegal for him to write these things. And he wrote this one called, And I Was Alive. It's the last day we have anything from him at all. And he was facing exactly what we're facing now a country that seemed completely, I mean, it was much worse, a country out of control and it had already become a completely autocratic, murderous state. And he was right under fire, and this is the last thing he wrote. And I was alive in the blizzard of the blossoming pear. Myself I stood in the storm of the bird cherry tree. It was all leaf life and star shower, unerring, self-shattering power, and it was all aimed at me. What is this dire delight, flowering, fleeing, always earth? What is being? What is truth? Blossoms rupture and rapture the air, all hover and hammer, time intensified and time intolerable sweetness, raveling rot. It is now, it is not. That's his last statement. That did survive, that did drive Stalin crazy. Mm. It did and does still have an absolute power, which is the power of consciousness. And that's the real thing that you can't let, you can't let this mass have that's trying to take over consciousness. That's what you have to preserve. Mm. Danielle. I wanted to mention a, a line that you in your book, Holler, and Christian in 
zero at the bone. You both quote from a Russian Orthodox ancient old saint that I knew nothing about, but the line is simply this, keep your mind in hell and despair not. Meaning what, do you think? And especially for our times, keep your mind in hell and despair not. I wrote that in my memoir specifically about January 6th, remembering that day and kind of a realization that I knew those people. Some of those people who were storming the Capitol that day were people whose lives and sufferings I recognized. And Mm -hmm. that was a sobering and indeed despairing thought because what do you do with that? So I think in terms of keeping your mind in hell, part of what it is is not turning away from how bad it is, but that includes not turning away from the sufferings of the people who are hurting us and who are seemingly the perpetrators in our current divide. And not giving up on the possibility that there is some way to connect. And that might be incredibly thin, as you were describing before, like the incredibly thin lining by which you can enter into a poem. It might be equally that, it might be equally thin finding some area of connection. But, you know, I think faith says that that is possible. Um, My faith says that that's possible. The faith of the mystic who wrote that line implies that there is some grain of light even in the deepest darkness. Speak more of the connection you felt with January 6th. I'm not sure I get that. I don't identify with their politics um, in the slightest. And in fact, you know, I'm quite vehemently, you know, on the other side. But it sounds banal when I translate it. But I mean, truly, the point is simply that we are all human. I mean, and in spiritual terms, it kind of boggles the mind to imagine, you know, each one of these people who seem from our point of view, like such an other has a human soul, Mm -hmm. has sufferings, probably pretty profound ones. A lot of people are living in violence, are living through trauma these days. So I think the takeaway for me is that human beings are incredibly complex and there are different ways for us to understand each other. And we're in a, in a moment where we simplify other people drastically and it makes it difficult to find any common ground whatsoever. Chris Wyman, I go back to the story of your sister mysteriously but completely detoxified by the death of your father, her father, looking, that is, for hints of grace or traces of grace that point another way. That We don't know where they came from, but in your sister's case, it was a sharp break. Can we imagine evidences we're looking for in our public situation of another way and the confidence to take that way? Well, I think that's what Danielle was saying about reimagining it. I think it will happen. I think someone will come along who has that kind of imagination. There was a beautiful book called Radical Hope by uh, Jonathan Lear, in which he talked about the Crow Indians and how everything by which they had defined themselves, by which they defined valor and, and being 
particularly a man in their culture, but also just being human, got destroyed. And they were no longer able to define themselves as a culture in the way that they had. And the book is about this one leader, the person who was leading the Crow Nation when they really fell apart, who had to reimagine, completely reimagine his people and lead them in a direction utterly different. He had to reconceive what mm. it meant to be a crow, and he did. And that book tells the story about how he does that. But you need someone with that imagination. What was it in his case? How did he do it? Yeah. What defined the crow men was valor in hunting and in killing. That's what completely defined uh, integrity. And the highest example of becoming a human was defined by those things. He redefined the notion of courage and what that meant. Mm. So he completely reconceived the notion of what made them a crow. We need somebody to, to reimagine our political being I think our spiritual being, I think that's actually happened, and I actually think poets are leading the way there. Would you say contemporary poets that you read and know breathe the same ambition and sense of themselves and of this moment? No, but I, I think it's built into the nature of poetry to um, reach for and articulate and bring into consciousness the other. It just happens. Even the most uh, atheist poet will tell you of their poems. It comes from somewhere else. They don't understand what happened, which is why I think that you can find spiritual dimensions to perfectly secular poetry, and you can have your spiritual life flourish by means of that. So I do think it's happening, not just in poetry, but in art. I think more and more people who become frustrated with the institutions of religion and find their, their spiritual lives are not being fed there, do find mm. that they respond in some ways to art. Would you speak of an informal church of literature, so to speak, that sustains a version of faith outside organized religion? Uh, me, no. I thought when I was young that I could make poetry replace God, that it was an end in itself. And in that way, I reiterated a course that Matthew Arnold took and other poets thinking they could do that. But for me, that led to despair. I think that poetry is a means and not an end. And for me, I have to have something beyond poetry. It has to be aimed somewhere. And my aim is God. It's not enough for me to just have literature be the stopping point. And yet... Literature is a real means. It's a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I find it very powerful and necessary in my spiritual life, often much more powerful than I find the Bible. The Bible is literature, of course, but I often am much more moved by other forms of literature. Danielle, what's your version of, of that, the church of literature? I mean, you're both so engaged in poetry as a way to some transcendental truth or something bigger than this poem or that subject. Can you think of meaningful poetry without some spiritual dimension? Or can you think of religion without poetry? I think that poems very much are the way for me and for many people to connect to something larger. And I think especially when you're talking about 
the poems of utmost extremity that somehow give language to experience that is otherwise unspeakable. Often thinking of or finding a poem that speaks to that same level of extremity is a way of reaching out, a way of making human connection. I think that there is a spiritual valence in that. In Christian terms, it would be when two or more are gathered in my name, I am with you. I think that there's an analogy between that and the act of writing a poem where, or reading a poem, but even writing one where even if only one other person can feel it, then there is an opening onto something larger, onto and maybe to the possibility of grace. That's important. I'm going to remember that. But I ask you partly because I wonder if you feel your own experience in danger, in love, in poetry, has real counsel for a country which is sometimes in freefall, if, if not something like despair. I guess I'm looking for a take-home lesson, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> a take-home lesson. Um, yeah, the great thing about poetry is it doesn't give you that. Uh, <laughs> You know, I have found poetry the most powerful thing uh, in my spiritual life. I feel that it's very loyal to me. Every time I drift away from it, it's always there. I can find it and go back to it. I do not think that poetry is for everyone. When I was at Poetry Magazine, we got a huge grant, $200 million, and turned into the Poetry Foundation and and the project became to get poetry into American public life. I still support that, I think it's great. But uh, I also became a little disillusioned with it, and the kind of poetry that you're able to get into American public life is often terrible. And I'm just not sanguine about the audience growing that much that it would have a political effect like that. And I don't think that's the way poetry needs to be judged. I think of Mandelstam writing or putting in his head that last poem on the streets of Voronezh, far from Moscow, far from the halls of power. That exists now in the consciousness of the Russian people. It exists in my consciousness. And it was just him against the universe or with the universe. It is now, it is not both at that moment. I don't really like to make claims for poetry like you know, saving us or something. At the same time, you feel thoroughly assured from your own experience that attention to poetry, attention to despair too, can wake us up. I do. Danielle? You know, on the other hand, we haven't yet had the American poet who can speak into this moment. Maybe that does exist. Mm. Maybe there is some Mandelstam or, you know... Miłosz or Zagievsky, who somehow can find an idiom that speaks to our country while also bringing the kind of consciousness that Chris was describing, mm. because both are required. You know, we need to be woken up to consciousness in our country desperately, but in, as you say, in a particular way, you know, as Americans. So, there need to be poems, and there are poems out there, but we need to read poems that maybe can do both of those things at once, that are poems of true consciousness, but that are also very specifically American poems. 
Do you think historically about poems that met that test? American poems? Yeah. There's Whitman. He's the obvious answer. I mean, he did very much define the consciousness of this country. I mean, he is the American poet. And yet now Whitman isn't really up to the task of describing the current moment. Right. And has become a little bit cliched is maybe too harsh of a word, but if you trot out Whitman, it comes across as, you know, a little pie in the sky (laughs) these days. I'd love each of you to read a poem, and you know them all, that once upon a time, maybe even today, sort of speaks to the hunger we're talking about. Chris Wyman. This poem that I wrote does, I think, speak into just exactly what we were saying. It's called When the Times Toxins. When the time's toxins have seeped into every cell, and like a salted plot from which all rain, all green, are gone, I and life are leached of meaning. Somehow a seed of belief sprouts the instant I acknowledge it. Little, weedy, hardy, would-be greenness tugged upward by light, while deep within roots like talons are taking hold again of this our only earth. Acknowledge the green. Yeah, I I mentioned um, reciprocal seeing earlier, and I find often that if I'm falling into despair because I'm not seeing, I'm not acknowledging what's in front of me. Mm. In fact, this poem taught me that. Uh, I never have these ideas before the poems. I have the poems, then then the ideas are what the poems have showed me. Often that I will get a response if I make the first gesture, if I acknowledge it. And in that instance, it's a, a seed of belief sprouts the instant I acknowledge it. And the result of that is a more tenacious grip on this our only earth. Over to you, Danielle. Let's see. I think it kind of speaks to a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today. It's called Leaving Boston. Your poem? My poem, yes. I know you all are from Boston, as we (laughs) talked before. Unfortunately, our main contact with Boston has been with the hospital there. Mm -hmm. And so that is really kind of a touchstone for me, the landscape of Boston, going back and forth to Dana-Farber. Ibrutinib, which is in this poem, is a uh, chemotherapy drug that Mm. is kind of called a miracle drug and has been very effective for Chris and many other people. This is called Leaving Boston. Burgundy geometries of waiting chairs recede and magazines flap open behind us as we smack through overpasses like waves of a whopping headache and rowers in late sun dip trim oars into the charles in unison ibrutinib ibrutinib there is a discipline a sport to hope to pray for prayers that break the surface whether you're better or please jesus never worse chris Wyman, you like to say over and over that maybe your favorite poem of all time is wallace stevens's domination of black. I'd love you to read it, not that long, but also explain how do we put it to use? I think that's a good question. This, um, 
I have a, the second entry in this book is about that poem, Domination of Black. I say it's my favorite poem, but it's in, in a certain, certain moods, certain needs, crepuscular moods and needs. This is an early poem of Stevens. He once said that it was his favorite of all that he ever wrote, Domination of Black. At night, by the fire, the colors of the bushes and of the fallen leaves repeating themselves turned in the room, like the leaves themselves turning in the wind. Yes, but the color of the heavy hemlocks came striding, and I remembered the cry of the peacocks. The colors of their tails were like the leaves themselves turning in the wind, in the twilight wind. They swept over the room, just as they flew from the boughs of the hemlocks down to the ground. I heard them cry, the peacocks. Was it a cry against the twilight, or against the leaves themselves turning in the wind, turning as the flames turned in the fire, turning as the tails of the peacocks turned in the loud fire, loud as the hemlocks, full of the cry of the peacocks? Or was it a cry against the hemlocks? Out of the window I saw how the planets gathered like the leaves themselves turning in the wind. I saw how the night came came striding like the color of the heavy hemlocks. I felt afraid, and I remembered the cry of the peacocks. And that is a very, very beautiful poem, and it probably leaves people a little bit confused if they're just hearing it on the radio for the first time. What I love about it is... Um, it exists in the state between denotation and connotation. It goes close to pure music, but not completely. And your first reaction to that poem is a kind of surge of spiritual alertness that goes right through your nerves. And I say spiritual because I know the poem, and that's what I associate with that feeling that goes through my nerves right there, that musical, formal feeling that poetry can do. The poem is about death, actually, because it mentions the hemlocks and the domination of black and the speaker's afraid at the end, and it ends up being a resistance to it, most notably in the cry of the peacocks, these flagrant, outlandish animals, um, but even more so in this perfect form and bit of music that he's set up against all of this darkness. This is beginning to sound like self-help session. I think maybe poetry is a kind of drastic form of self-help. <laughs> People sometimes ask, you know, is poetry therapy? I don't think of it as therapeutic because it is taxing. That's the thing about writing poetry is that it is spiritually and intellectually demanding. You know, it's not a warm bath, or it shouldn't be. If it is, it's probably not a fantastic poem. Um, but I do think that in a, as I've said before, you know, in terms of extremity, it can be saving. Maybe more than self-help, it's kind of self-rescue. Danielle Chapman, Christian Wyman, this was a real gift. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us, Chris. Yeah, thank you. This was a pleasure. 
Christian Wyman's new book of poetic religious reflection is titled Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair. Danielle Chapman's new book on her Southern childhood is Holler, a Poet Among Patriots. Here at Open Source, we depend on listener support. If you haven't done your part yet, seize the moment. Visit radioopensource.org slash donate and pitch in to keep the world's first and longest running podcast going strong. Open Source is proud to be a member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-based collective of independent, creator-owned podcasts. Our shows range from politics to art to history to technology. We come together around the principle that independent voices are more important now than ever. You can learn more at hubspokeaudio.org. Thank you.